Hello, this is Rob Behrens here welcoming you to Radio Ombudsman and we're very lucky to have a special guest today, Rebecca Hilson-Rath, who is the Chief Executive Officer at the Equality and Human Rights Commission. You're very welcome. Hi Rob, thank you very much for having me. Now, we've got lots of things to talk about. You have a wonderful CV and career. You are educated at Cambridge University where you studied classics and law. You're also a novelist, writing under the pseudonym of Jane Diamond, is that correct? It is true, although I'm a bit disarmed that you actually found that out, but <laughs> yes, it is true. You have established two schools in, during the course of your career, which is very interesting. Not many people will have done that. And you have been named as one of the top 100 lawyers in the United Kingdom uh, in 2012 and uh, after that date. So you now have a high-profile job as the head of an organisation currently investigating human rights records of the BBC and the Labour Party. We won't ask you about those things, but we're very interested to ask you about your early life and uh, the values that were instilled in you. Could you tell us a bit about that? Thank you. That's quite hard to encapsulate, isn't it? But I would. I suppose I'd start by saying that my grandfather was a spy. Your grandfather was a spy? Um, Not many people, no one said that. No, it's a good opening line, isn't Absolutely. It? My grandfather was a spy and he was, at the, at the start of the Second World War, he was ran running spy rings in Holland and obviously things got dangerous so he sent his children back to England, which is why my father ended up um, spending a chunk of the war on the outskirts of Wales near Ludlow in Shropshire. And my, my grandfather then got out of Holland on the last boat when the Nazis came and ended up decoding Enigma in Bletchley Park. Wow. Uh, my grandfather's father was German and my grandfather was bilingual and he was one of those people who helped with partially decoded messages because he knew the language. Um, and my father's memory was that all that period of time that my, my grandfather was very depressed and angry because I think he was one of the earlier people to know about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And I mention those things because of what I took away from that and what are the values that I grew up with. First of all, my, my father was profoundly affected by being having this period of time in Shropshire, in a little village with no electricity, no running water, no mains, no telephone, nothing. And as a result of that, I've actually lived half my life in Wales because the countryside was so important to my family that I've always been a bit of a half-and-half -half person. My father never really adapted to London life after that. And of course, you know, growing up as any Anglo-Jew does with that sort of background of the Holocaust and that that understanding of what happens when the human rights framework completely falls away. And my, my Jewish way of life is very important to me and as indeed I'm very proud of my my grandfather's contribution um, we were brought up to be educated to work hard to make a contribution to the community. Did you know your grandfather? I did yes. And did you talk to him about these things? Yes and no. Yes in terms of you know Bletchley Park. In fact I took not my grandfather but I took my dad back to Bletchley Park which when I was in the museum you can go and we yeah. saw the hut where my grandfather worked and that was huge you know for all of us but no we didn't talk about 
the emotional bit, the Holocaust piece, that was not uh, as many people in my grandfather's generation. It wasn't something you spoke about. And in many ways, I think my father was brought up with the idea that you didn't talk about these things and you kept your head below the parapet. Mm -hmm. That was quite important as, a, as a, an Anglo-Jewish family growing up after the war. And is your father still alive? He is. And he does is. he hold the same position? Well, my father, um, it's interesting actually. My father has, has dementia. He lives with me. My, my mother died a few years ago. And my father really struggles with the coverage in the papers of anti-Semitism. It, it's a hugely difficult topic for him, which is kind of understandable for many people. For my, my father-in-law, who was a Holocaust survivor and came out of Vienna during the war and is still alive and he's 99, and he is American, he lives in New York, he finds the, the coverage of growing intolerance xenophobia, anti-Semitism, incredibly difficult. Mm. And I think all that generation do. Mm. So it's clear that you would inherit those values and, and, and seek to make them real in your life. But when you were growing up, when was it you decided what you wanted to do? Well, I, I fell in love with classics when I was um, at school and I really enjoyed um, studying. I studied at Cambridge. I loved the language um, and history. I've always loved reading, loved la language and that whole idea of decoding Latin and Greek was, was, was great fun. I think the change to law was a big thing for me because it was about real people, which is to say that Cicero was a real person. Um, but I remember starting to read legal cases um, in the Cambridge Law Library and just being entranced by the idea that these things had happened to Mr Smith and Mr Jones in, in, the, in the 20th century and when you're really used to studying Tacitus, that's quite a big turn on. And the idea of actually working in a discipline that was going to help people. And my mother was a teacher. I think that was a big thing for me, big influence. And when you left university, you, you didn't go straight to the Human Rights Commission. It didn't, didn't exist then, of course. No. So just tell us a bit about what you did on your way there. Well, I started off um, in the city working at Linklaters, which was, I suppose, a kind of intellectually ambitious thing. You know, it was about sort of, you know, kind of starting, you know, with, with I suppose, the biggest um, thinking that I've learned a lot there. Actually, one of the biggest pieces of learning for me during that period of time was that I started volunteering at a local law centre um, and um, chaired it for a while. And I got a huge amount out of that, not least, of course, because if you work in that area of law you get a lot of responsibility whereas you know as a trainee in a big city firm you do an awful lot of photocopying and you get more responsibility um, and, and you get involved with real people in law centres and then of course I had a career break and as you as you say I got very involved in building schools and I think what I fell in love with there was the idea of public policy and not just kind of law for, you know, I suppose adding wealth to, to corporates, but um, working with people in a community endeavour um, really got terribly interested in the whole legal infrastructure of schools and educational policy and edu education law. And um, that took me eventually, after I'd had far too many children in a short period of time, to getting a job in the legal advisor's office for the Department for Education. And that was really coming out of my involvement with schools. And when I went to the DfE, I thought I was going to be an education lawyer, but of course I didn't, because you end up moving around within the government, and what you're really learning is how to be a public lawyer, how to be a government lawyer. And I stayed there um, until I left. I took a secondment out to become chief executive of a charity called LawWorks, which is the solicitor's pro bono group. And Just explain to our listeners what a pro bono 
group does? A very interesting, very good question. So, um, what LawWorks does is it interfaces between um, solicitors who are offering their time without charge and community groups, charities, individuals who can't afford to pay and um, don't qualify for legal aid. So, typically, what LawWorks does is it offers triage, it runs clinics. It, it operates as a sort of interface um, to make it easier for people to offer their time. Um, so pro bono would be free to the service to the user. user. Correct. Yeah. Um, okay. was a, lot, a lot of firms, you know, want to offer those programs to their staff. A because it's you know it's obviously good to make a contribution. B because it's good marketing. And C because it's very developmental. And what LawWorks does is it kind of takes the sweat out of that and provides opportunities. And I learned an awful lot from that, both about the subject matter, about helping people, about um, those areas of law and about leadership. And the wonderful thing about that is that when there was a role advertised as Chief Legal Officer at the Equality Human Rights Commission, I was actually credible for it. Do you think you were suited to being a civil servant? I suppose it depends what you mean by civil servant. I mean, yes. When I'm, you worked in the Department yeah, for Education, I mean, I, I'm for example. I'm part of the broader civil service now, although right. obviously not, not in the narrow sense. I love the public sector, and I've worked in the private sector, public sector, and the third sector, and I, I love the public sector. I love that feeling of being involved in the development of policy and contributing towards how society is run. There's a professionalism also there, and a shared sense of endeavour. And I really enjoyed my time in government. I often look back and wonder why I left, except for there was an opportunity for learning that came up that I think I wouldn't quite have gotten in civil service. Because the problem about civil service is government departments are so big, if you want to learn about leadership, you're kind of always part of a bigger whole. And the advantage of running LawWorks is that it taught me something about leadership I wasn't going to learn back in the civil service. But working in an arm's length body like mine, um, I think in many ways it's the best of all worlds. Though it's a big responsibility because you have to call the shots. Yes, but you, you work with your team. Yeah. Um, you learn how to listen. You learn how to try to improve. And it's, it's challenging. It, it's enormously, I think it's a privilege, my job, because it's so interesting. We cover so many um, important facets of life. Um, and we're kind of really at the edge of how to make society a better place. So when you joined the Human Rights Commission, it was going through a transformation. I think that's fair to say. I think it had been through some very difficult times. Yeah. And that was, to be honest, one of the advantages, the attractions of joining it, because I'd hate the idea of working for a perfect organisation because you struggled to figure out how you could add value. I've not found one yet. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was overwhelmed to get the role it felt like my dream job and I was thrilled to get it but I was a bit a bit sort of overwhelmed by the idea of what what was I going to do and then when I turned up I realized how much needed to happen and my ability to add to that was really exciting actually so uh, for those who aren't familiar with the organization it has a huge mandate across equality and human rights and a steadily diminishing budget I think that's fair to say. It's very fair to say. I think, broadly speaking, we have about 25% of the budget that we were set up with. And we went through a very troubled time. We were established in 2006, and by 2010, 12, we'd lost three quarters of our budget, suffered mass resignations, had had our accounts qualified three years in succession. And I'm always quick to say I wasn't there then. But when I joined in 2014, 
those things were in the past, but there was a real sense of, of bruising, I think, in the organisation. And I think having, having been in, in a quite difficult place, it had moved into that um, place that organisations do of, of slightly going to shut down and being a bit too nervous and too cautious to do anything in case something else got, somebody else got their knuckles wrapped, if you like. And also, I think it's fair to say that the organisation was set up in 2006 through the merger of three legacy commissions, Equal Opportunities, Race and Disability, mm. with the added remit of human rights. But there hadn't ever been a proper exercise to truly merge mm. the commissions. And when I joined in 2014, I went around asking everybody how long they'd worked at the commission for. And what surprised me was how many people said enormous numbers like 25 years, which I think was staggering anyway. But of course, what particularly staggered me was the organisation was only seven years old, and I realised that in their minds they were kind of still working for the Commission for Racial Equality. So the work that we did, sort of around about 2016, after I became Chief Executive, was very much about really bringing people together and, and solidly forming that sense of identity as the, as the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Do you think there's something a bit curious about in the United Kingdom we struggle to give resource and status to our principal human rights body but everywhere else in Europe those kinds of bodies have a lot of status a lot of resource and quite a lot of power do you think that's accidental or is it a reflection of our culture um, I'm not necessarily sure that I agree with you mm -hmm. um, I think there are lots of different models and we work with lots of different networks. So the um, ENRI, which is the European Network of National Human Rights Institutes, and Equinet, which is the European Network of National Equality Bodies, and also the global equivalents. And in fact, we chair the Commonwealth Forum of National Human Rights Institutes. So we see a lot of different models, and some of them are ombudsmen, much more like you than, than like us. Yes. Some of them are one or the other, but not both. Northern Ireland, for example, has a National Human Rights Commission and a National Equality Body, and they're separate. And there's a whole science to whether you should have one, both, or the other, or mixed. And they're all sorts of different shapes and sizes. Mm. But I would say that one of the um, heartening or positive things that we do from time to time is step outside the UK and refresh our understanding of how we are viewed internationally because the Equality and Human Rights Commission has a huge national, international rather reputation yeah. um, in terms of the quality of work we do, our influence. Um, and while there are certainly other bodies that are bigger than ours, there are an awful lot that are far smaller and far less resourced and don't have our powers either. And, and, and an example, which I think we might come on to later, is that we have a statutory duty to report every five years, in fact we do it every three years, on the state of equality and human rights in the country. We call it Is British and Fairer. We measure what's regressed and what's improved since the last time we did this in terms of outcomes. But I've spoken at international conferences where nobody else has that statutory duty and, mm. and they would love to have a sort of is Germany fairer, is France fairer, but they don't. So we, we have a good range of powers. Yes, we don't have as many as we had because you know we have lost some over the years. We have we, we do have independence and we do have resource and we, we would like to have more, but I think we manage well with what we've got. Okay, just diverting specifically to that issue, on the basis of your research, what are the biggest obstacles to making Britain a fairer society? 
that's got, there's quite a long answer to that question. I, I think 2018, we, we last produced Is Britain Fairer, um, which was a year ago now. And I think what we found was things had got better in some ways. So in terms of um, proportion of population engaging in um, political life, in terms of education, attainment gaps in some ways, in terms of equality in the workplace in some ways. But there were some very significant entrenched disadvantages. So some groups, for example, disabled groups, some ethnic minorities, we, we have found are suffering entrenched disadvantage across the piece. So you're looking at kind of health and housing and employment and justice like and on a sort of cumulative basis with some really alarming stats like for example disability hate crime we found have gone up 175% since the last time we've measured it. Infant mortality has gone up for the first time since the 1990s. So some really sharp end difficult stats there. Um, and the key of what we found was that that, that gap was widening, widening between people who actually were doing better and people who were doing worse. And it's, it's looking difficult to see how you're going to get out of that without some quick and very sort of determined interventions. And I suppose one, one reason for that is that the, the, the causes are quite multifaceted. So you've got, yes, you've got successive governments, frankly, which haven't done enough to intervene. Yes, you've got responsibility on the part of um, employers. And yes, you've got a sort of um, a cultural gap there. You look at kind of bullying in the workplace and, and hate crime levels and so on and so forth. But you've also got access to justice gaps. You know, you've got a legal aid system that frankly just isn't really working very well. So the trouble is you've got that entrenched gap. And when things go wrong and you're reaching out for remedy, that's not an easy way out either because, you know, you don't really have access. If, for example, you've got a housing problem, it's not very easy to get legal advice to address that anymore. So you, you're looking at things getting worse instead of getting better. And by the way, if they get really, really bad indeed and you end up in prison, you know, the pr pr prison profile is not good. You're talking about two-thirds of adult prisons being overcrowded, R really difficult stories around prisoners self-harming and violence escalating and so on and so forth. Mm. So a bit depressing. How easy is it to resource the organisation which requires so many different specialist skills? So um, our organisational theory of change, and we've done quite a lot of work um, in terms of trying to understand how we can have an impact, how you know, we hold ourselves to account for impact, for evaluating everything we do. Um, there's a really important piece that says what, what works. You know, we, we don't have many resources, as you've said, and um, what we do has to count. Um, so um, we need to understand how we can have the greatest impact. And our theory of change says it's by integration of our functions. Mm. So you know, we carry out research, we conduct inquiries, we conduct investigations, um, we take strategic legal cases. And for all these things we need lawyers, we need analysts, we need effective communication experts, we need researchers. And we need them all because in order to make a really impactful intervention we need to ensure they're all part of the work that we do. And instead of doing isolated work like you know, a case over here or an inquiry over there. Mm. And an example of that perhaps is we did some work on sexual harassment, so sort of on the back of the Me Too, Me Too movement. So we carried out some research and um, we looked at what um, that felt like to 
I think from memory, I think it was about a thousand people who had experienced sexual harassment, what they'd done about it, how effective the complaint systems were, um, and, and what reporting looked like. We took up some strategic cases. Um, we did a lot of work in enforcement, particularly around so the president's lunch this year. I can't remember if you remember that and 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 non-disclosure agreements. We made several calls for changes in the law mm. um, around non-disclosure agreements and around providing a duty, anticipatory duty on employers and having a statutory code of, um, of practice in, in, in that area. And we also reported on the issue um, under the International Human Rights Framework in relation to the CEDAW, Convention on Elimination of Domestic of discrimination against women um, and in fact that was very successful it's quite a long answer question because we, we have now seen consultation on the change of the law and the government has said that it will look at laying the statutory code of practice which we have drafted and it's, it's looking at regulating non-disclosure agreements and that has been a very impactful piece of work of ours which has been precisely about drawing together different skills um, and different levers to work in an integrated fashion. Okay, so if, if we take sexual harassment, for example, is it the case that the problem for disabled women or black and ethnic minority women is worse when confronted with sexual harassment than for, for white women, for example? That's a very interesting question. And one of the pieces of thinking that we're doing at the moment is how we need to ensure that all the work that we carry out is to the greatest extent possible looked at through the intersectionality lens. Yeah. But I would say in particular in relation to sexual harassment, obviously the big concern um, about sexual harassment is you know, to what extent is it holding women back in the workplace. And when we conducted the research that, that I referred to, we found that a large number of, of women were, who, who made complaints of sexual harassment were talking about behaviour that they were experiencing at the hands of a senior colleague. So when you combine that with not only the gender pay gap, but also the um, disability pay gap and the ethnicity pay gap, what yeah. that all adds up to is you are more disempowered in the workplace because you're more likely to suffer these things at the hands of a senior colleague. And, and all the pay gaps show us that actually if you have one of those protected characteristics, um, you're mu much less likely to be in a senior position. Mm. We should also remember, of course, that uh, men get sexually harassed as well. When I was a higher education ombudsman, that was an issue. Not a big issue, but a significant issue in a minority of cases. So and some good. of the people who responded to our um, research were men who yeah. suffered it or, or who witnessed it. So just briefly, what, what, what are the priorities for EHRC at the moment? So um, we are coming towards the end of the first year of our latest strategic plan, yeah. which we laid in Parliament started this year, will last for three years. We are very committed to making sure that this is about long-term work. So although we have a duty to review our strategic plan every three years, we're hoping that will be a relatively light touch process so that we can look at these streams of work on a more long-term basis. And we, have, we are very keen to prioritise, that's what we've been told to do by our stakeholders and that's what we know we need to do. As you, as you said, we have a very broad remit. But the five priority aims that we came up with were access to justice, uh, fair and equal access to the labour market, an inclusive transport system, an education system that was inclusive and rights respecting, and looking at a rights respecting framework for institutions, entry into and treatment in, in them. Those are our kind of five priority aims. In addition to that, we have what we call a core aim, 
which is about if you like the system of human rights and equality itself so a looking at where we need to take action in order to shore up sort of constitutional framework and b ensuring that we use our enforcement powers so that where we see egregious breaches and you referred to the investigations labor party earlier as kind of an example of how we would take action in that sort of example and it's no secret that human rights in europe and outside europe is under attack from a whole section of people who want to undermine it. Do you have any view about the way to champion and effectively uphold human rights in the face of this rhetoric? It's a huge challenge, isn't it? And I've heard it said that there is obviously a kind of huge overlap between human rights and equality, but in human rights it's about understanding that other people have human rights um, as, as well as you, even people who look, who look different. And there are an awful lot of people who will sign up to the idea of human rights in theory, but it's about how it works in practice that they find challenging. I think, I think there are two approaches that we need to take. Um, I think one of them is, um, and perhaps this is something that we need to learn from the lesson, lessons of the past, is we need to approach it from a positive place. But we need to express it in a values-driven way. We need to use a sort of uplifting and engaging language as opposed to telling people not to do things and telling them off. And that's really how we're going to connect with people and, and, and make them understand what it's about, if you like. Um, and I think the other, is, other thing is about understanding your audience, as always. You know, it's about segmentation, understand why this particular group is resistant, why this particular group finds it difficult. And there's kind of a, a number who are very much in favour of human rights and a small number who, who, who are opposed to it and probably will be opposed to it, whatever you say and do. So you've got to understand who you're talking to and, and, why, and why, what, where their, their sort of perspective is and then address it in, in as positive a way as you can. I mean, given your family background, there must be a tendency for you quite a lot to look at the past and, and wonder what we can learn from that as far as your, your operational practices about at work. Would that be fair or not? Is that a romantic view? I suppose the two things I take from the past are, are these. One is that I do think we all, all of us, need to do a better job at understanding other people. I mean, we all have threat characteristics. And, you know, uh, as, as, as a member of the Jewish community in the 21st century, you know, we're, we're all aware of, of, of what happens when things go wrong. Other people have different stories, uh, and we need to stop thinking that we've got the only story. Mm. And in fact, if you come from a background which says, you know, we, we've seen people suffer, we've seen people die, then that, well, that actually gives you a better understanding of somebody else, as opposed to thinking, actually, I've got the market on suffering. That, that's not a good approach. But I think what I take away from my, my own sort of community history, if you like, is that the, the Holocaust, the Second World War, shows you what happens when you really don't have a framework at all, when there are, there's no respect for the fundamentals. We have seen only too recently what, what, what man can do to man. And it was a generation ago, you know, we, we, we're losing the very, very last survivors of the Holocaust. And I think what happens when you lose the survivors is you, you it is so easy to forget and it's so easy to blur the edges. And I think, you know, we've seen a lot of, a lot of conflicts recently. We've seen a lot of people moving away from, um, from ideals of human rights. And we've seen people, I think, begin to take things for granted. And I think people have, are beginning to forget. I think, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, it would have been impossible to say and believe and do some of the things that we're seeing happening now on the streets of cities across the world. So the, the, the thing is the, the memory gap, and that's what we yes. have to address. 
I've, I've been to some places in Africa where they address that issue by by tying it with more modern massacres in Rwanda, for example, yeah, to indeed. to make sure that people understand the immediacy of it. So that's interesting. We're coming towards the end. I've got three more questions for you. We couldn't have this discussion without talking a little bit about Brexit. Are there equality and human rights implications for Brexit? That, that of course, there are implications for equality and, and human rights. I think the biggest one is that as and when we come out of Europe, we will lose an awful lot of underpinning. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are things um, that are the way they are in our infrastructure because of European directives that say, you know, you have to have these things. You, you know, there's parts of the Equality Act owe, owe their existence to the, the Euro- European law and so on and so forth. So, so the, the first question is, are we going to hold on to these things? once you move away from Europe. Because the opportunity is there is there are also things that hold us back under European law. Yeah. Um, so one example is procurement, um, which under European law, you can't use procurement laws to favour positive action to, to one group over another, which you might want to, you know, in, in, in relation to looking at equality of opportunity. But that first thing is, yes, losing the underpinning. Secondly, the second thing is we're losing the European um, Charter of Fundamental Human Rights. And there are gaps there um, in terms of what we have domestically and, and what we will lose, including procedural rights, but not just procedural rights. We need to look at what international trade agreements are going to look like, how we ensure that Britain holds on to that place. You know, in, in, in its, you know, it's always been a world leader in human rights. It's always um, been at the forefront of legislative development. You know, we always say that it was British lawyers who drafted the um, European Convention, Universal Declaration. And you know, when, when Brexit was first mooted three years ago, you know, there are a lot of people in Europe who are saying, but you know, we owe all these laws to you. you. You guys were the ones who put them together. Um, so something about how, how we stay part of that narrative, how we don't get left behind, how we ensure that we are still a fair and free place to do business, and, and how we ensure that we you know we stay in the vanguard of all these things. I mean vanguard, but anyway, you, yeah. know, you know what I mean. Okay, thank you for that. Just ask you a question about the role of the Ombudsman. When I go around Europe, a lot of my colleagues have the human rights mandate tied into their Ombudsman mandate. Catalonia comes to mind as a very sore and current example of that. Poland as well. I think Hungary. That's not been the tradition in the United Kingdom, but there's no reason why it shouldn't be. I don't think the existence of your agency stops the Ombudsman from looking at human rights questions. And I want that to be a key feature of our new strategic plan from 2021 onwards. Do you think that's a good idea or or are you happy that your agency has that covered and it's not necessary for us to do that? No, I think it's a very excellent idea um, for lots of reasons. I mean, obviously, you know, we're a limit, we have a limited size and, um, and resource and there's no way that we can be solely responsible for human rights across the country. The essence of how we work is, is partnership and our, our, our relationship with what we call RIOs, regulators, inspectorates and ombudsmen is absolutely central to how we work and it's about sharing, understanding and expertise. Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission developed a manual for ombudsmen, which I'm sure you're aware yeah. of, um, on human rights. And that's exactly how we need to be working. We, we've provided training. We have an advice to advisors line um, where we, we, we try to provide ombudsmen with sort of better, better understanding of 
expert areas. But ombudsmen are in a fantastic place to be able to look at these things on a case-by-case -case basis. We tend to be more strategic, ombudsmen looking at, looking at it very much on the ground. Do those two things meet, you know, because you're able to establish trends, you're able to be able to share information of what's going on on the ground, and we're able to look at strategic issues and then sort of kind of bring them down and establish precedent. Um, so I see it as a fantastic partnership, and I couldn't be more delighted if you look at embedding that in your strategic plan. That's good to hear. So my last question is this, and again, it reverts to the traditional way of radio ombudsman. Uh, we have a lot of very good young graduates working for us. We have a lot of very old graduates also working for us. But what advice would you give to young people coming into the ombuds profession in terms of your experience of dealing with human rights over such a long period? Well, I'll give you two answers. One is perhaps more specific than the other. So my specific answer is I, I think that it's a fantastic place to be. I think it, it's never been more important in a way um, than to work in the sort of field that you're working in, in terms of looking at making services better, getting better outcomes for people, and looking at embedding human rights at the heart of public service delivery. Um, so I think people coming in should feel that they're doing the right thing, they're in the right place, and they're making which I think is about the most motivational thing you can you can have, you know, in, in place of your career. My general, more general piece of advice, which is advice I freely dish out to anybody who's foolish enough to ask me for career advice, is just keep aiming high. You should never ever apply for a job that you think you can do, because it will <laughs> bore you silly. You will just stay stay in a sort of stasis the rest of your life if you keep on applying for things you could do. Apply for jobs that you think you probably have the potential to grow into and scare yourself silly and that way you will grow and make an even better contribution to a really important place. Thank you for that. That's, we'll, we'll make sure people hear that loud and clear. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you Rob. It's really great to be here. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.